Let's pray as we approach Scripture today. Lord, to whom shall we go? You've given us the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Help us to understand. Help us to feel your spirit. And as we speak and listen and consider, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week we're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 10, the whole chapter. Uh, it's a long passage, so you might want to um, turn in your pew Bibles or if you brought your Bible there to read along. Um, in this passage, there are probably, probably six different sermons or lessons or ideas you could lift up. And often that is the way we treat this passage. We break it into sections. But as a whole, we see things that we don't see when it's broken up. And so we're going to take a look at it all together. Um, if you were with us last week and in the week's prayer, you know that we were uh, spending time in Matthew. And last week we focused on Jesus's appearance to the disciples after the resurrection. Uh, we noted that Matthew doesn't record many of the details about what the disciples and Jesus talked about other than one particular command, the Great Commission, which says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded to you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. If we look in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke also reports an encounter between the disciples and the risen Jesus. He includes a little bit more detail of what went on, but he still records that same commission. Um, Jesus tells the disciple in the gospel of Luke that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as we pick up the story here in Acts, it's still Luke who is writing, and he continues to show how this great commission was enacted. And we start to see the good news going outside of just the Jewish community. Um, although this passage geographically took place in the same area of the world as Jesus' death and resurrection, they weren't very far apart on the map, it still symbolizes the inclusion of a people who were a world apart from the Jews in every other way. And it's because of the events here in this chapter of Acts that those of us who aren't of Jewish heritage are welcomed into relationship with the God of Israel. And it's here where Jesus is definitively established as the Savior of the world, as Lord of all. And, um, and the promises that we read about Jesus being a light to the nations are fulfilled in this passage. But none of this was a foregone conclusion for Jesus' first followers. At the time, it would have been completely unthinkable that salvation would be offered to the Gentiles. After Pentecost, we read through Acts that the mission does begin to ex expand first to the detested people of Samaria. So that would have been a struggle right off the bat. Then, um, then the good news spreads to the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a marginal member of the people of Israel. 
But the idea that the mission would go beyond the extended Jewish community would have been really far from those first followers' minds, and it was really far from Peter's mind. And so this passage is a turning point. It's a turning point for Peter, and it's a turning point for us and the way we understand salvation. Luke spends a lot of time on this story. Um, several of the elements repeat. They repeat here in the passage. They, um, in Acts 10, they repeat again in Acts 11. And then uh, once again in Acts 15, Luke returns to it. So we can see by all those repetitions that the story is important. And, um, and through it, we begin to understand what God is doing. And through the actions of this passage, we begin to see how Peter and then the rest of the church in Jerusalem begins to grasp the change that's taking place as the gospel is opened to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. And so with that in mind, let's listen together to Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the, for, to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure, impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. 
Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him stand up. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the providence of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even to Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And so you'll have noticed that the story begins with two parallel experiences of the Holy Spirit, two parallel visions. We have Cornelius and Peter both encountering visions that would ultimately bring them together. When we meet Cornelius, we're in the Palestinian province of Caesarea, an area under Roman authority. And it's important to know that the Jews 
hated Caesarea. They'd often speak of it as though it weren't a part of Judea at all. The population there had more Gentiles than Jews, and the two groups had been rioting against each other for decades, even going so far as, um, as massacring the entire Jewish population, which was probably 20,000 people. And so um, the war between these two people was significant. The Jews hated Caesarea. There's a long history of bad blood that even goes back into the Old Testament because this is the exact same city by a new name where Jonah resisted going to preach repentance. Uh, that at that time it was called Nineveh instead of Caesarea, but it's the same place with the same problems. And so we can see that there's no love lost between the two regions. There's no love lost between the Gentiles and the Jews in that area. Cornelius was one of the officials of that providence, a centurion of the Italian cohort. He was a part of the Roman army. And so at first glimpse, we might think that he is going to be the villain of our story. But quickly, Cornelius is revealed to be a devoted man of faith. He's a God-fearer. He is not a Jew. He hasn't converted. He hasn't been circumcised. But he followed the, the gestures of worship. He followed the patterns of worship and the patterns of the life of God's people. Um, he attended the synagogue. He honored the laws and the customs as though he were one of the Jews. He was generous to the needy. He devoted himself regularly to the things of God and the things of prayer. And so he was praying at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon one day, uh, historically one of the Jewish appointed times of prayer. So again, his life was matching um, the, the customs of the Jewish people around him. And in that prayer, he's told in a vision to send for Peter. And meanwhile, in Joppa, which was about 30 miles away, Peter also receives a vision he, of course, is a devout Jew and new Christ follower. He'd been faithful to Jesus from the beginning, although not without a few denials and detaching a soldier's ear along the way. Um, he had been traveling throughout the country. He'd been healing others, teaching them about Jesus, and Peter even had raised someone from the dead. And so there was no question that the Holy Spirit was upon him and that he was being faithful to the call of God in his life. In the midst of his travels, he's ready for a break. Um, it's a crazy time in the early church, and so he is worn out, weary, and hungry. And so um, while he waits for a meal to be prepared, Peter goes up to the roof of the place where he was staying to pray. And then suddenly he has a vision of his own. Uh, like I told the kids, it was a vision that, um, that challenged and changed everything that he had thought. A sheet or sail was filled with every kind of animal, and it was coming down from the heavens. It contained things that Peter would have eaten, things that he would have no desire to eat, and things that he had been forbidden to eat by the Levitical cleanliness code. The contents of that sheet represented the entire animal world. It represented all of creation, and the four corners of the sheet representing, re represented the far reach of north and south and east and west. And so the whole planet 
was symbolized in this vision. The whole universe was symbolized in this vision. And a hungry Peter is told to kill and eat. And his first response is, absolutely not. Will not do that. Um, It was Peter who declared that he could walk on water with Jesus. It was Peter who displayed remarkable insight and the depth of his faith in the confession of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. And it's also Peter that said Jesus would not and could not die for everyone else. And so, characteristically impetuous, impatient, zealous Peter's first response to God's command was a denial of what the Lord was telling him. Peter says, I have never, never eaten anything unclean, and I'm not about to start now. And in fact, the Lord asked him three times. Uh, I mentioned in Sunday school, none of the resources that I looked at mention if this has any parallels with the three times that Peter denied Jesus and the three times that Jesus restored Peter, asking him to feed his lambs. But, um, but it would be interesting to figure out if there was a connection. Um, at, at any rate, we can see the parallels. In this story, um, it's possible that Peter thought that the Lord was testing him to see if he would continue to be faithful. The church was changing at the time. Paul had just converted, and they were trying to figure out what to do with him. Stephen had just been martyred. They were trying to figure out what that meant for their new church. And so it's likely Peter just thought this is a test of the Lord. Um, and so it's, it's hard for us to imagine what Peter might have been feeling. It it's easy for us to be hard, thinking, you know, it's the voice of God. How hard is that to just listen? Um, but we have to remember that these were the laws that Peter had always known. These were the laws that he had grown up with. These were the laws that Jesus kept when he walked on earth with him. And these cleanliness laws weren't just a matter of etiquette or particular culinary tastes. Um, it was possible and that the cleanliness law, laws were a little bit connected with food safety, um, since the early Jews didn't have the means to protect against foodborne diseases, um, especially the ones that are carried in improperly cooked pork or shellfish. But more importantly, this code, these Levitical laws, including the dietary laws, were what separated the Jews from everyone else around them. They were a matter of survival for the Jewish identity. The Jews faced incredible pressure to forsake their faith and to become more like the culture that they were living in, the pressure to concede, to blend in just a little bit more with the people around them was significant. Um, But even just a bit of pork or a pinch of incense to Caesar or a few mixed-faith marriages could have been a matter of life and death for the Jewish customs and the Jewish way of life. Um, Just a little bit of assimilation into the culture that surrounded them could mean the end of their people. And so the Jews held fast to their code, and it's no wonder that Peter was baffled when he heard the words, kill and eat, and that his first response is, no way, God, I'm not going to do that. But God responds to him, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. At the end of this, the sheet goes back up to heaven and 
Peter wakes up, but he doesn't yet understand the meaning of the vision. He knows that, that something is going on, but he doesn't exactly know what. He's confused and likely overwhelmed. It didn't make any sense. And then while he's processing all this, while he's mulling it over, the word in Luke means to, to wrestle with. Um, while he's, he's going through all of this, men that were sent by Cornelius arrive, and things start to fall into place for Peter. He gets a little bit of clarity. And so when the men come to his door, Peter invites them into his house. That in and of itself is pretty remarkable. Um, up until this point in redemptive history, Jews and Gentiles were not to share company, especially in their homes and around their tables. However, here we see Peter's thoughts starting to shift, and he was beginning to understand a little bit more about what God was doing. Later, um, Peter goes back with the men to Caesarea, and he takes another step of faith by going into Cornelius's house. Um, it's one thing to invite Gentiles into your home where you have control over the environment and the food and the rituals, but it's a whole other thing to then enter into the home of Gentiles. It's, a, it's an intimate step. It's a step of trust and vulnerability, but Peter takes that step. He goes in, and even as he goes in, he declares that this boundary crossing is unlawful. He quotes, but he, at the same time, he quotes from his vision, telling him not to call anything unclean that God has made clean. And in the midst of this, Peter confesses that he's beginning to understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts everyone from every nation who fears God and does what is right. And that right there is an incredible confession that opens the good news to Cornelius and his friends in a way that they had never had access to before. All of a sudden, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection had just as much importance for the Gentiles as it did for the Jews. And Peter realizes that if all are made clean, then these righteous Gentiles deserve to have the gospel preached to them too, so that they too would have the opportunity to believe in Christ and receive forgiveness for their sins. And so having been fully convinced that this is what his vision meant, Peter begins to tell them about all that Jesus did. And then we're told that while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit interrupts his sermon and falls upon the gathered Gentiles in a real and powerful way. And the circumcised believers who were there were amazed, but they recognized what was going on because the Spirit came in the same way that they had just experienced at Pentecost. They had seen this movement of the Spirit before, and because of the way the Holy Spirit showed up, Peter and those with him recognized that these uncircumcised men who up until this moment had been excluded from the covenant had already been regarded as worthy. You know, the standard practice at the time were, was that new converts were baptized by the disciples and then received the Holy Spirit. But here the order of things is, is reversed, and the Holy Spirit acts to draw in the Gentiles. And then it's up to the church to recognize the new thing that the Spirit is doing. And so in the midst of all this, Peter finally grasps fully 
what God wants, and he orders Cornelius and his friends and family who were there that day to be baptized. And then he stays with Cornelius for several days, sharing food and fellowship, sharing the teachings of Jesus, and celebrating the God who has made everything and everyone clean. You know, just a few days before, this intimacy with the Gentiles would have been unthinkable to him. But now, accepting their hospitality is a sign, a beautiful sign, of the great shift that's happened. You know, the cleanliness laws as they apply to food and the cleanliness laws that as they apply to humans are inextricably linked. And in this passage here, we see for the first time that Jesus overturned them both in tandem. And now there's nothing off limits, and there's no one who's barred from receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. God has the power to make anyone acceptable by cleansing them and bringing them to faith in Christ. And now none of us can call unclean or unworthy of our community or unwelcome anyone who God has already made clean. You know, as we consider what this passage means to us, I think it's important to remember that this isn't a change of God's mind. This isn't a switch from the plan. It has always been the intention of God. Luke tells us early on in his gospel that Jesus would be both a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. Yahweh's exclusivity with Israel was for a time, and now that same exclusivity is no longer appropriate. One commentator used the example of a mother seeing her child across the street, across a busy street, getting ready to walk across, and the mother shouting, stand still. And then a minute later, seeing that the traffic had come to a complete stop at a stoplight, then she shouts, walk, come on, come across. And so this isn't a contradiction in what she was saying. All along, the plan was to have her child walk safely across the street. And so the initial command was the right one at the right time to make sure that that would happen. You know, if she hadn't given that first command, if she hadn't given those contradictory commands, then the child wouldn't have made it across at all. And so both of those things, even if on the surface they appear to be opposites, were all a part of the plan to get her child safely to where she wanted them to be. And that's the way it is with God, too. This was always a part of the plan. And here we see that shift in the way that God administers the covenant. Through Jesus' command that the news of his death and life and resurrection be taken to all the world, no matter where, we can celebrate that it is the same God who reaches out to each of us, the same gospel that calls us home. And social boundaries and ethnic differences and ways we worship, they're no longer obstacles because the people that God have call, has called have already been made clean. And so as we apply this passage today, it's a powerful reminder that we have to have the same mind that, that is in Christ. It's not ours to categorize people or to deem that they're outside of God's redemption because of who they are or where they've come from or what they've done in the past or when they've come to faith. 
We touched on that um, several weeks ago when we were discussing the workers in the vineyard and the ways that the workers who had been there all day were kind of cheesed off, that the workers that came at the end of the day were still given the, the same pay, the same glory. And at that time, we considered that if we're not joyfully welcoming anyone who fears God and does what is right, then perhaps we've missed a little bit the point of grace through Christ. In the passage, is, in the chapters before this passage in Luke, Stephen reveals that the physical temple was unnecessary, and now through Peter's vision, God is dispensing with the idea that only people who conformed to the purity standards and rituals of the faith or came from the right ethnic lineage could be saved. The exclusivity of the Jews that had once been necessary is no longer valid and has to be shed. We see this very idea echoed later, becoming foundational for Paul, when he declares that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We know that the church continues to struggle with this, and we can see that played out through the rest of the New Testament, and yet here in this passage is where everything shifts and this idea becomes foundational. I think another application of this passage is recognizing that Cornelius was not the only one who was called to a conversion in this story. Both Cornelius and Peter faced a change because of what the Holy Spirit did. Cornelius, of course, facing a conversion of faith and Peter facing a conversion of thought. Peter and the early Christian church see their whole identity as shifted by God's Spirit in this moment. And as we consider the way that Peter had to change his mind according to God's leading, we think of our own struggles to discern God's will for our beliefs and practices and understandings, the work that comes from deciphering where we should hold fast to ancient truths and traditions and historical interpretations and where we might be being called to change. And we're called to the work of discerning between the deceptions and misleadings of the world, of the broken world around us, and the work of the Spirit in our midst. And it's hard work. It's work that we don't always get right. It's work that we're not always sure of. But one of the essential truths that we claim as believers is that we are the church reformed, always reforming according to the Word of God and the call of the Holy Spirit. And that means we're called to constantly both hold true to what we believe and be willing to change and move as the Spirit reveals new things to us. Repenting where we get it wrong and rejoicing where we get it right. And like I said, these are hard things. This is not an easy path to walk. Um, many of the, the things that we consider don't have clear-cut answers as we consider the vast array of scholarship and perspectives and practices, and certainly the list of beliefs and practices on which the church universal does not agree is long. But we strive to be faithful, individually and as a community. It's important to note that after Peter's vision, he had to wrestle with its meaning and consider the implication. And then later in chapter 11, he was called to give an answer for his interpretation and his actions. And, um, and he had to wait for the church around him to affirm him and to um, be convinced as well. And so just like Peter, we have to continually be in relationship with one another. We have to continually be willing to be shaped and challenged and rebuked by 
the work of the Spirit in our lives and in the community of, faith, of the faithful around us. And we always have to be ready to give an answer for our decisions and our interpretations. And together, we can discern the way the Spirit of God is moving in our lives. You know, in this story, Peter confesses that Jesus is Lord of all. And this isn't an aside. It's not a throwaway line. It's not a new idea. Like I said, this was God's plan before the creation of the world. And because Jesus has ascended to reign with the creator of all people, creation and redemption are irreversibly linked in him. We can't have a Lord who's only Lord of part of creation. So friends, this morning, as we consider this passage, as we consider Peter's journey and Cornelius's journey, we rejoice that the salvation offered by Yahweh is no longer exclusive. Our God accepts from every nation the ones who fear him and do what is right. The good news is going out to every corner, to every people, to all nations, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now it's our job to continue to go into all the world. And as we go, we praise God for Jesus, who is Lord of all. And we praise God for Jesus, who invites all to place their trust in him. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a wonderfully challenging, inspiring, confusing passage this is. We pray that we would be faithful. We pray that you would help us to hold fast where we need to hold fast and change and convert where we need to change and convert. We thank you that you are indeed Lord of all and that there is nothing outside of your care and love. There is no one who your grace can't reach, including us. Thank you for that, God, and pray that we would continue to carry out your great commission to go into all the world, teaching and baptizing and making disciples for you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen.